Hey, before we get started today, I want to let you know about something that's going on with one of our other ministry partners. And I don't know if you've been following the news yet. It's not real popular news, unfortunately, in the U.S., but I mean, if you look closely, you can follow some of the things that are going on in Haiti uh, right now and a lot of protesting and some difficulty, especially in Port-au-Prince, the capital city. We were supposed to have a team in Haiti this weekend. They were supposed to leave on Friday, but uh, that team was canceled. Their trip has been postponed along with other trips coming up, at least for now, over the next month. And uh, we, we appreciate the NVM staff and how seriously they take things like personal security, and, uh, and so they're not wanting us to be there right now. But uh, I, I hope and just, uh, here's what I would ask. Let's just, we want to pray together uh, for peace to really overcome Haiti right now. We want to pray for protection for the people there, for wisdom, uh, for the leaders there. And we want to pray uh, for NVM, especially as there's just some real ramifications as a result of the instability right now and their ability to get food and resources they need to take care of their people, the people that they're serving, uh, and even their own staff. And so uh, let's just take a moment before we get rolling and uh, pray for them today. Uh, Father in heaven, we do turn to you and we trust you, Lord. We know that this is a broken and a difficult world uh, that we live in. And and uh, we thank you for what you're doing through ministries like NVM and so many others uh, around Haiti, Lord, and just their efforts to bring light to the darkness and for all of the good work uh, that you are doing and accomplishing there. And uh, we pray for them right now during this time, Lord. We pray for Pastor Pierre and his family. We pray for the staff there, for the people that they're serving, Lord, that uh, you would provide for their needs, Father, that their faith would increase their trust in you. And, and I pray just at the same time, Lord, that uh, you would work miracles around them right now. They, they're going to need resources, and uh, we pray that you'd provide those resources and increase uh, their faith. We pray that peace would overcome Haiti, that uh, you would continue your great work there and just continue to challenge us, Lord, in Genesis Church, how we can play a part, uh, what you've called us to here locally, but uh, around this world as well. Give us faith and uh, just give us the boldness to follow you, uh, whatever it takes. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, if you've got a Bible with you today, I want to invite you to take it and turn to Acts chapter 1. Uh, your Bible most likely is divided into two parts, the Older Testament and the New Testament, the New Testament being the second half. And about halfway through that second half, or three-quarters of the way or so through your Bible, you'll find the book of Acts. And uh, Acts chapter 1, if you picked up a Bible on the way in the room today, you can turn to page 758. Uh, we'll also have these words here on the screen uh, for you to follow along. But as you're doing that, how many, uh, how, many, how many gamers do we have in the room today? If you're so bold enough to put your hand up or you love video games. And, but, but here's what I'm thinking. I'm not thinking about PS4 or Switch, all right, the, the latest stuff. I'm talking about some of the classics, right? Like how many of you, how many of you, when I say ColecoVision, know what I'm talking about. Anybody have a ColecoVision or ever play one, right? I think the ColecoVision uh, Donkey Kong was kind of, well, was a popular game uh, with the ColecoVision. Or uh, probably many of you had an Atari, right? Anybody have an Atari here or play Atari before? Or games like Space Invaders, uh, Asteroids, Frogger. Those are some popular Atari games that I remember. Well, I had, I don't know if any of you know this or had this game system, I had the Intellivision, right? Anybody ever heard of the Intellivision? This is the Intellivision 2 
two, actually, and uh, kind of out the same time as Atari, not nearly as popular as the Atari, but as you can see, it had this little black circle, which worked as the toggle switch, and you had the number pad, and there was a little plastic card you could slide in there, depending on the game that you were playing, and there were buttons on the side and all this, and I, I accumulated a number of games uh, over the years. I loved the sports games, all right? The sports games were my favorite, but here, here's, what, here's what made it unique and was just so different than it is today. Like, there was no single player mode when it came to a game like baseball, right? You had to have a buddy, all right? You had to have somebody else to, to play the baseball game with. That is, unless you were so good at it that you could actually play with both hands. And uh, believe it or not, when I was a kid, I played it so much that I mastered the art of being able to lay both of those controllers on my legs, and I would play with both hands, and therefore, I won all, all the time. I, I, and, and I lost at the very same time. I mean, it just it all kind of balanced out, and I, and I, and I took it a step further because I, I love sports. I love baseball. I love stats. I created these teams with, uh, uh, the, 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 created these leagues, and I, I made lineups, and I kept stats, and I, so I, I kind of had this fantasy league before there was ever such a thing as fantasy leagues. And, and again, as much fun as I had doing that, right, nothing was better. There was nothing better than playing against someone else. Like whenever I had a buddy that knew how to play baseball or if my dad would sit down and play with me, there was nothing better than that because the fact is that there are some things that we just weren't meant to do alone, right? I'm, I'm sure we could think of some of those examples. Like, uh, how about this one? Like folding a fitted sheet, right? Uh, who knows how to do that? Certainly not something that you should ever attempt to do alone, all right? It's always helpful to, to have, a, have a friend there. Or uh, how about this one? The three-man weave in basketball, right? Not, not something you should try and do on your own. It's helpful to have a second and a third or uh, two-person video games. Again, it's, it's better to have somebody else with you. There are some things that we weren't weren't meant to be done alone. And can I just tell you this morning that the same is true of your faith in Jesus Christ? Like the same is true of your faith. Now, certainly like, like because your faith in God was never intended to be this individual pursue just all on your own. Like true, you have to make the personal decision to submit your life to Christ. True, you have to accept his forgiveness. But what the book of Acts is going to show us as we look at this together over the coming weeks is that so much of what God wants to do in us and through us and in you and through you and for the world, like it's meant to be accomplished alongside other people. And so we're going to spend the next few weeks studying uh, the fifth book of the New Testament here, a book that's officially called the Acts of the Apostles, right? Now, your Bible probably just simply lists it as Acts, but it's officially the Acts of the Apostles. And Acts, when you boil it down, is just simply this. It's a history book uh, that opens with the ascension of Jesus into heaven, and then the following days and years of these first Christians and the early church and how all of this was coming together. Now, the author of Acts is a guy by the name of Luke. And you know his gospel. If you know the Bible at all, if you know the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, the same Luke, all right, Luke that wrote down for us the, the events of Jesus' life, recorded these events for us to read and experience. This is the same Luke now writing, preparing this historical account. He was a doctor by training, okay, but he wrote both Acts and Luke's, excuse me, Luke and Acts by carefully investigating the events and interviewing the eyewitnesses of these particular accounts. Now, at first glance, it appears both books, you can check this out for yourself in both Luke and we'll see it here, or in Luke and we'll see it here in a moment in Acts, but he prepared these books for a guy by the name of Theophilus. 
And uh, there are a lot of uh, debates and arguments about who Theophilus was. Like some think he was a skeptic, all right, but that he, he funded the project. Uh, others think that Luke could have been a slave uh, to Theophilus because many doctors in the first century were actually slaves owned by wealthy masters. Uh, but still others think that Theophilus, whose name means loved by God, all right, is actually a generic name for the children of God. And so therefore, Luke was just writing to all uh, of God's people. Regardless of the intended audience, Luke wrote down his findings in Acts so that 2,000 years later, you and I could have access to them. Let's pick it up in verse 1 here. Uh, Luke writes this. He says, in my former book, Theophilus, there's the guy's name. Again, seems like an interesting way to open a letter or writing, but this is 2,000 years ago. That's the way they did it, all right? So it's perfectly acceptable then. He writes this. I wrote about, Luke says, all that Jesus began to do and to teach. Now, I want you to notice a word here that would be real easy to skip by. You might even underline it if you've got your own Bible. Notice what he says here, that Jesus began. And that's the word I'm getting at. He says, Jesus began to do and teach. Again, the implication here is that after Jesus rose from the dead and appeared to his disciples, he ascended into heaven, but the work wasn't finished. All right, this was just something that Jesus initiated. It was something he started. He he wasn't done, all right? He, He wasn't done teaching. In other words, the work of Jesus was intended to be continued through the people, all right, through the church here on earth. And I don't know about you, but that's why I get a little uncomfortable at times when I've heard people say, I hear people say things like, well, I I like Jesus, but I just don't really need the church. I don't have a place in my life for the church. See, here's what I think the heart of Christianity for us is that following Jesus is our personal day-to-day trusting, abiding in Jesus, okay? But it's also getting to know and participating with a church family like this one. The two were never intended to be separated, all right? It was something to be experienced together, but that's not the case for everyone. We, we, we've, we've made it a habit, you know, of separating the two or choosing this one over that one for many different reasons. And so how then did we get here? Like, how did we get to that kind of place? How did our culture, how did this Western world sort of become like this? Like, how do we get to a place where many will say that, you know, I, I call myself a Christian, but maybe not playing an active part in a church? And, and, and how, do we get to, how do we get to a place today where even being a part of weekly worship, really, well, we, we've, just, we've moved away from it. We're, we're a little more infrequent in it than, than we have been in the past. I believe that one of the major reasons for the de-churching of America is just a widespread misunderstanding in America and indeed in the Western world about what the church was intended to be, about what the church is supposed to be. And that's why we're starting this new series today. And I'll just tell you up front that today's message is really just kind of a long introduction, like not longer than normal, but it's just really a long introduction to the things that we're going to talk about over the next weeks. But the goal is we just, we want to make an effort at looking to Acts. Like if this is the first church, like what can we learn from it? Like, what, what are we missing? What are those things that we're seeking after that we got to continue after? And what does the Lord want to teach us? How does he want to encourage us, not only as a church, but, but individually as well? And we're going to look at the first eight chapters of Acts together. If you want a reading assignment, you can do that on your own, even this week, or make it your goal over the next month to just kind of keep reading through the first eight chapters of Acts where we see the formation of the very first church. There's a, a book that's out right now that if you like to read different books on the church and faith and the Christian life that you might know or have heard of, but it's written by a guy by the name of Francis Chan, and he wrote a book called Letters to the Church, and I'd recommend it to anyone. I'll tell you up front, it's challenging. 
Uh, it's convicted me. I know it's convicting some of our staff, and I know some of you that, that have read it. And, and, and he addresses a number of different things. He, he, he talks about right away where his just concern that we've made church in the Western world, in America specifically, this whole consumeristic experience that you know, find one that you like, and when you're not satisfied with it anymore, you move to another one. And so we just we go looking at churches to meet all these needs for us, and we're, we're missing the point in it. But, but he asked this compelling question in there. And if you're familiar at all with the book of Acts, you'll, you'll kind of get what I'm saying here. But he asked this question. He basically, he basically frames it up like this. He says, I want you to imagine for a moment that you grew up on an isolated island, all right? And, and so therefore, you're unfamiliar or with, with America and, and certainly the, the church in America today. But one day, somebody gives you a copy of the New Testament, and they just give you this assignment, maybe assignment specifically in Acts, and say, hey, read it. And then when you're done, I want you to tell me what the church should look like. Like, what would the people in the church do? What would worship look like? What, what problems would the church address and how? And, and we can find all of that and more. There's so much to learn in the book of Acts. But one thing that I think may surprise you is this, that what we're doing right here, like this time of worship, was never intended to be the main purpose of the church. Now, that doesn't mean that it's not important. I think this is really important. What we do here is so important every weekend but the thing is this, I don't believe that Jesus ever intended for, or envisioned for the church to just simply be a place where people would come and gather in rows and drink coffee and listen for an hour, and then we go back on with our regular life. And so it begs the question then, like, like well, what do you think of when you think of the church? Like, that's just what I found myself thinking about this past week. Like, what, if, I, if I set aside what I'm preparing, like, what is it that I think of when I think of the church? Like, my experience. And in a room this size and with all of our different stories and experiences, I'm, I'm sure we'd come up with all sorts of different answers, but probably so, some similar ones too. Like for me, you know, so much of my impression of the church just has to do with my upbringing. I, I was born basically in the church. I mean, I, my, my parents, it was a priority. So we went every week. I've worked at four different churches, traditional churches and non-traditional churches. I worked at a really, really large church before coming to Genesis. And, and when I came to Genesis 10 plus years ago, we were a church of about 100 150, 200 people, and now we're two campuses with about 1,000 people today. And like many of you, I've visited churches all around the area and around the country and around the world. I mean, I think we could all agree there are many different expressions of the church today, and there's a lot of good in that. And, and many of you today, you're, you're here from different churches or different church experiences, and, or maybe some of you are new to church. Maybe some of you used to go to church a long time ago, but you're just you're coming back maybe thanks to the invitation of someone else. Here's what it all comes down to. The, the, the church, when we think of the word church, well, it lends itself to all sorts of different pictures and experiences and opinions, some positive, hopefully a lot of them positive, but unfortunately, probably some negative ones too. But here, here's, here's the kicker, and here's where I'm challenged. Whatever you think of when you think about church or whatever your picture, my guess is that it's a different picture than what the people in the first century in Acts chapter 1 experienced. And it might surprise you. It might surprise you just at this, at the very first church in Acts, it began as a movement and not a building. It wasn't about a building. There, there wasn't a building that they could meet in. It wasn't about a location, but it was a movement. And so that means that there, there were no sermon series. There were no bands. There were no youth groups. There were no bagels, right? I think they did donuts in the first century, uh, actually. But, and the first church wasn't launched around a worship style or even a particular community or even around a belief system. No, here it is. Get this. The first church 
was the result of a disciple-making movement started by Jesus and catalyzed by his death and resurrection and a message that through Christ, your sins are forgiven and that through Christ, you can have new life in this world. Write this down if you're taking notes today. The first church was not a place, but a collection of people. The first church was not a place, but a collection of people. It began as a movement, and in many places around the world today, and even here in our country, it continues as a movement. Uh, in fact, if you look at the Greek New Testament and you look at how the word uh, that is now translated as church, if you look at it in its Greek, you'll see this word. It's the Greek word ekklesia. And it's a word that means assembly. It's a word that means congregation or gathering. It, it, it means people. It means called out ones. It comes from two Greek words, ek and kaleo. Again, it means the called out ones here. But again, it's about people. And what Jesus launched, when Jesus launched the church in Matthew 16, he launched the church as a gathering and said, on this rock, I will build my ecclesia, my, my people, this, this movement. But unfortunately, unfortunately, something happened through history. Like as time went on, there was a transition from this idea of church as a movement of people and church became more of a location. And, and think about some of the ways, think about some of the ways the consequences of this linger today. And, and I've been guilty of this, we all have. Like think about how often we make a statement like, I'm going to my church today, right? We, we'll, we'll say that. Or maybe, have you ever threatened your kids before? Or like, hey, you're going to church whether you like it or not. And, and even more so, you know, because of what you just did. Like we do that. Or maybe you drive down Pleasant Street and you point out to a building like this one to your friend and say, hey, that's my church right there. Like I've done that. I, I do that all the time. I mean, it's just kind of a part of my regular vernacular. But where did that come from? Like how do we get to that place that we, we associate the church more as a building than as a movement of people? Well, a quick history lesson might help. And I first heard Andy Stanley kind of teach through this, so uh, I appreciate his uh, perspective here on this history. But get this. Around 300 AD, the emperor Constantine legalized Christianity, and because of a religion in the world started to spread. And when it got eventually to the German-speaking regions, the word ecclesia was translated instead as the German word kirche. All right, which sounds a little bit more like our word church today. Well, Kirka uh, was actually the word for a church building. People associated with building location rather than with people. And this sparked a transition uh, from church as a movement of people to church more as a location. And it led to all sorts of bad theology, uh, as you can imagine, because whoever controlled the building could ultimately control the church. And before the printing press, it may be that there was only one copy of the scriptures and it was typically housed in the church building. And so whoever controlled the building, then also controlled the scriptures. And if you controlled the scriptures, you could control the people. And in many instances in history, if you controlled the people, then you could also control the government too. What resulted? Well, in many situations, there were these ugly expressions, if you would, of the gospel. The church became very exclusive. Uh, many examples of, of unethical and immoral choices. And so what started out as this a movement initiated by Jesus, the cross and the resurrection, in a matter of a few hundred years, it was becoming something that wasn't from God. Well, thankfully, different men and women showed up throughout history and sacrificed their lives to help bring the church back to the heart of God. And one of those change-your-world types was a guy by the name of William Tyndale. And he was born in England in 1494, a famous scholar and, and author. Tyndale was a master of languages, knew something like fluent in eight different languages, and uh, a man of great faith. 
William Tyndale had one great passion, and that was to put the Word of God into the hands of ordinary people. Now, Tyndale lived in a day and age when people like you and me didn't have access to the Bible. Only the religious elite controlled the Bible, and the Bible was available usually in languages, again, that average people like you and me would never understand. So, so very few had access to it. And so with this control, you can just imagine how anyone could change the message, manipulate the message to say what they wanted it to say, and so all sorts of horrible manipulation came out of this. Well, William Tyndale got to a place in life where he had seen enough. He started translating the scriptures then into the English language. The church leaders in England weren't happy about this, and it didn't take long before Tyndale was declared an outlaw and forced into hiding in Germany where he continued his translating. Well, he was eventually betrayed by a friend, brought back to England where he was tried as a heretic. He was declared an enemy of the church, strangled, and his body was burned at the stake. But get this, it was too late. Even though he was dead, it was too late because the work had been done. And for the first time ever, common, ordinary people like you and me had access to a Bible and could read it. And what had become this institutional church defined by a building slowly began to lose its power. Tyndale's last words that have been recorded as he, put to as he was put to death are these, Lord, open the eyes of the King of England. How fitting then that the most printed and read book in all of history of the world is the King James translation of the Bible, uh, thanks to people like William Tyndale. And again, it was his desire to put a copy of the Bible in the hands of people like you and me. And in addition to the scriptures, in addition to providing these translations, he also provided commentary on some of the Bible's most important messages, reminding people that, no, the church is not a building. It's not a location. It's a movement. It's a movement of people who embrace one great message of hope for this world, and that is that Jesus Christ died and rose for our sins, and, and which means that you and I, here's what it means. It means that you and I, as followers of Jesus Christ, our church, we have a responsibility to help share this message with the world. Here's what it comes down to for us today as we kick off this new series. God never intended for his church to be defined or limited to a building or a location. His church is a movement. The work we've been given is the work of a movement, a movement of people that started with Jesus Christ. And why bother to tell you all this? Well, I think it'll make sense in just a minute. Let's look for ourselves here in Acts 1 at a few of these verses before we close here today. Acts chapter 1, verse 1. Here's what Luke records. Again, in my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After his suffering, Luke writes, he, Jesus, presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. And so again, his death and resurrection, this is really the catalyst, all right, that get things rolling for the church. All right, Jesus is going to continue on, give them some more instructions. Luke writes, on one occasion, while Jesus was eating with them, he gave them this command, do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you heard me speak about, for John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. But the apostles still didn't get it. It says, then they gathered around him and asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom of Israel? He said to them this, Jesus said, it is not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority, and then he gives it. 
This is really the big instruction, if you would. This is the mission. This is, uh, these are the marching orders and maybe the kind of a foundational statement of sorts for the first church. And there's a lot here, but look at what Jesus says about our mission and our purpose as a church. He writes, Luke writes, verse 8, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. I want to give you a picture of what Jesus was getting at here. This is a, a picture, a map of, of Israel. And so Jesus said, Jesus said Jerusalem. So he's talking about a very specific place, a city. He says, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in, in Judea, all right, which is the, the larger portion, the larger region surrounding Jerusalem today, in places like Samaria. But hey, even more than that, my expectation for this movement is that it will extend to the very ends of the earth and you're gonna be a part of it. You here in Acts 1, you're gonna be a part of taking the message I am sending you out today. That's why we're calling this series Sent. Because the church, Genesis Church, is not a building or a location. It's people. It's people like you and me. We are the church. We are what Jesus had in mind, a gathering, a family, a family working together on mission. By the way, this is why we would say even something like a connection group is so important here at Genesis, because we want you to get to know people. We don't want you to just sit in rows. We want you to be in circles, you know, with other people and do life with one another. Again, this is about being a family, a family on mission together. Again, we're a collection of people gathered to be built up, to be sent out on mission. And some of us are sent to, to our own Jerusalem, right, to our own Judea, our local area. Some of us are going to be sent out to Samaria, maybe a place that most people don't want to go. Some of us will or have been maybe be sent out to places around the earth. Now, sadly, I think this is where we get a little crossed. I think this is where we can miss it because so many of us think, well, we'll leave the kingdom work to the missionaries or we'll leave the church work to the pastors or to the paid staff. And because of this mindset, we kind of miss this idea that Christians, every Christian, every follower of Christ is a part of the ecclesia. Look at what the Bible says is the job of pastors and staff, for example. Paul writes this in Ephesians 4, verse 11. He says, so Christ gave, or himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and the teachers. Why? To equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. So where does that leave you today? Where does that leave us today? You're a part of it. I want you to know today that you're, you're a part of God's plan. Like he's got a purpose for your life. You're a part of the assembly, if you would. We are, we are a part of the family, this family on mission. We are the ones who are the sent to be sent people. But again, we've gotten so interested in the West and counting people uh, building our weekly attendance, growing our giving, growing how many people are in groups or how many people are serving or how many students attend stuff. And that's all good stuff. Those are all important indicators and things to work towards, all right? But it's not the ultimate thing. And I've been guilty of this. Like I've been guilty at times, if I'm just honest with you, of judging our effectiveness or my effectiveness by how many people are coming but then I realized something. I, uh, I heard someone say these words, and I, it's really just kind of a revelation, a way, a change in the way of seeing things. And it's so good. Again, I didn't come up with this, but uh, it's just simply this, that a church shouldn't be defined by its seating capacity, but by its sending capacity. You know, that we shouldn't be defined by our seating capacity, 
but by our sending capacity, that a faithful church isn't necessarily one with the biggest attendance or the nicest building or the largest auditorium or the most campuses, but instead a faithful church is one that is intentionally and increasingly winning the lost, building up and growing people, equipping kingdom workers, and sending leaders out to make disciples. And I just want you to know today that this is what we're trying to do at Genesis. Like, this is the effort that we're making. These are the things that we're praying about. We want to be a church that reaches people for Christ, helps them grow up in their faith so they can stand on their own two feet with their own faith, but then equip you, equip us to all be equipped to be sent out into this world, into our own communities, neighborhoods, schools, the places that we work, wherever we encounter people, wherever we can influence people. We are a sent people. We are a part of the movement. We all have a responsibility in this. And that's why we're trying everything that we can. At the same time, it's why we're also a church that doesn't do everything. All right? You know, and I've been a part of churches that have program after program after program after program. And I realize that some good things can come from these programs. But I think that sometimes the overprogramming leaves a false impression that we're winning. When in fact, we maybe are just missing the point altogether. And so we're making our goal disciple-making. I love, we've got churches in this community that we're praying with and speaking with that have the very same goals and desires, chasing after these disciple-making sort of things together because Jesus said, I want you to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria to the ends of the earth. It's just a reminder to us that the mission's out there. It's out there. And God's desire, God's dream that you will see your role, that you have a part to play in this, that this is just, it's like the classroom. This is the locker room of sorts. This is where we sit down. This is where we're trained and encouraged together. It's where we for sure come to worship God together and learn together and encourage and pray for each other and heal our wounds. But then we get back up and we're sent out on mission because we all have a role and a part to play in that. And I want you to see that for yourself before we close. Again, verse 8. Look at these words one more time. Jesus says, but you will receive power. Can I ask you to personalize this today? Maybe even put your name there. But you, but, but Paul, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you, Paul, you will be my witness in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. It's just a reminder that you have a part to play. I want you to know today that you've got a part to play in this. You're a part of his church. You are a part of God's plan, his mission to this world. He wants to grow you and he wants to equip you to be sent out to represent Jesus in this world and to make disciples. Friends, you are a part of the mission. If you've got any doubt about your role in this world today, you are a part of the mission. You have a part to play. And I want you to know that God has a greater purpose. He has a greater purpose for your life. And if you're here today and you've never surrendered your life to Jesus Christ before, I want you to know that it's his desire that you will come to faith in his son, Jesus Christ, and trust him with your forgiveness and with your salvation. And he wants to grow you up in your faith and that he wants you, he wants you to be a part of the greater plan that he has for this world to continue the movement with us and with others, the mission of helping people find their way back to God. And if there's any part of that that makes you nervous, right? Maybe you're thinking to yourself, that makes me a little nervous. We don't need to be afraid because look one more time, notice what Jesus says. The promise is you will receive power. And that's the same power that Jesus had in his life. The same power that was available to Jesus is the same power that's available to you and me. And that's what we'll talk about next week. The power in us and available to us to be the church, to live on mission, a part of the movement as sent people.
people. Let's pray.